This podcast is made possible by Workiva and U.S. Bank. Hi, this is John Kinzer, CFO of HubSpot. You are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 396. Virtually every board likes to have one or more independent board members that are kind of finance heavy, right, that can talk about uh, and be a second opinion on kind of finance issues. Should we raise debt? Should we raise capital? Who are good debt providers? And the question is, how do you kind of get yourself in the supply? One, I, I would try to be kind of an outward-looking CFO as opposed to an inward-looking one, right? Like a lot of CFOs know an enormous amount about their business, but they don't spend enough time kind of looking at public company earnings announcements, reading financial analyst research, really being up to date on you know the, the leaders' numbers and ratios and reporting. Um, so the first thing I'd say is look outward. From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. On today's show, we speak to Dave Kellogg, CEO of Host Analytics. That's right, Dave is not a CFO. In fact, the early part of his career, he was a marketer, first and foremost, and his specialty was arguably that he knew how to reach and target finance executives and leaders. He's now using that smarts to build host analytics. When it comes to cloud adoption and the finance function, the investors behind host analytics believe Dave Kellogg knows what he's talking about. For that reason, whether your organization is an early adopter or a laggard, when it comes to technology, Dave Kellogg is keeping his eye on your world. Our discussion begins after these words from our sponsor. Workiva transforms the way people work through connected reporting and compliance. The facts are, a majority of senior accounting and finance professionals say their financial reporting involves a huge amount of manual work and is inherently error-prone, leading to risk. Risk that's intensified by new business complexities and the changing business climate. Link data elements, numbers, narrative, and calculations together everywhere you use them. When you change data at the source, it's changed at the destination. Gaining trust in your data and processes is that simple. Join over 3,500 customers who enjoy the benefits of using Workiva by connecting their organizations from record to report. Visit workiva.com slash CFO. in enterprise performance management software. Dave, welcome. 
Hi, Jack. It's great to be here. I should mention, Dave is today a board member for multiple startups, and among his numerous uh, tours of duty in the technology realm, once upon a time, he led marketing uh, for business objects, uh, which specialized in business intelligence software. One of the great growth stories in the last two decades, business objects grew from 30 million to a billion in revenue over a nine-year period. Dave contributed to that growth by understanding corporate finance executives. If you're a corporate finance executive, he knows where to find you. He knows your pain points. Um, and finally, business objects, for those who might not recall, was acquired by SAP for, you know, more than $6.5 billion eventually. Anyway, Dave, you entered uh, host analytics uh, nearly six years ago, roughly six years ago. When it comes uh, to your tenure, I'm curious how you look back at your host years, whether there's multiple chapters here or do you see it as just one large chapter for you? Yeah, I think for me it's been one large chapter. I mean, I think there was a chapter prior to my joining uh, where you had uh, kind of the, the, the first kind of the zero to $10 million executive team, uh, and they did a great job of moving the company uh, up really from nothing to around $10 million in ARR. And, and I came on board since then to really drive the second phase of the company's growth. Um, and it's really been one long chapter, maybe several sub-chapters, <laughs> but, but, but the overall theme has been growth and scale. How big is the firm today, Dave? Uh, we, you know, we're private. We don't publicly disclose the revenues. So uh, I'll tell you, people-wise, we're 300-plus people. Um, uh, that's probably the best I can do. Okay. Well, can you tell us who owns uh, Host Analytics? Sure. We're a venture-backed company. We've got uh, four different VC firms in. And can you tell me, uh, when was the last one added to the list? Uh, November 14th. So we've gone, we've gone quite a while on our last tank of gas. Now, I want to I ask you about uh, hosts' offerings and understand better, um, you know, what attracted you? What was the opportunity you saw with these types of offerings? And I shared part of your background before because it's clear to me you understand uh, the finance uh, function, the department so clearly. You probably saw this as a unique opportunity in some way, but I'd rather have you say it in your words. What would you share with us? Sure. You know, we do pretty much the same thing that Hyperion did back in the day, right? Hyperion being the gold standard of enterprise performance management, meaning financial planning and budgeting, modeling, consolidations, reporting, all that stuff that Hyperion really, where they ruled the earth back in the day of on-premises, we do that at host, but we do it in the cloud. So the, the primary attractor to me was uh, I was sitting at Salesforce before joining host, and I said, gosh, you know, host has a chance to do to Hyperion what Salesforce did to Siebel, which is, you know, to show up with a cloud-based offering and to do things kind of faster, better, cheaper, and in, while finance, in my mind, kind of has lagged sales by about 10 years in cloud adoption, <laughs> uh, that was actually the upside is that we had kind of a big greenfield opportunity uh, for a relatively cloud, unpenetrated market. Now, what would you tell us if I was to ask for a growth obstacle day, something you had to confront uh, as you arrived and entered the CEO suite at Host, perhaps? 
what was it? What exactly was the, the obstacle that you've overcome along the way here to, uh, to, to introduce these cloud offerings to more finance folks? Sure. I mean, I think uh, I'll, I'll tell you about what we broke through and then the, the one we broke through after that. So it, to me, in the evolution of any startup, somewhere between zero and five million in ARR, you establish product market fit, right? You could sell a few million just being lucky or finding uninformed customers. But, but, but when I joined the company, we'd established product market fit, which is the first big milestone for any startup. The one we would not yet established when I joined, and it took a, two, a year or two to get hammered out, uh, was the kind of the holy grail, which is a repeatable sales model. Um, and people bandy that term about quite a bit, but, but it, there's actually a lot to that. Um, and, and doing that is much harder than it appears. But once you've got one, then you're in a position where you can just raise capital um, and build up your sales force. And, and that's what we did. So then that last round, that $25 million round at the end of 14, that's what that was designed to do. We figured out the repeatable sales model, we raised some capital, uh, and then we invested in scaling up the sales force. All right, tell us something about the marketplace here. Is this, uh, how much penetration is there? And is it, uh, would we be surprised to learn that you believe that only, you know, you're only, 25% of what's out there. Yeah, I'm going to hit you double on this one. So first, I, I think in terms of the cloud penetrating EPM, it's less than 10%. So less than 10% of all EPM sales are done in the cloud, i.e. 90% are still for on-premises solutions like Hyperion or TM1 or SAP BBC. Um, and then if you want to really see the, the greenfield opportunity, I think that the EPM market itself is probably only 25% penetrated because for every company that's using an EPM system, I think you're going to find three people who are still using Excel for financial planning, budgeting, modeling, uh, and reporting. Um, and that's not just little companies. We, we find $10 million startups who are using Excel, and, and we find $10 billion companies that have hundreds of linked spreadsheets um, that aren't yet using an EPM system to manage their planning. Now, you've been watching so closely for years now a technology adoption in the finance function. Are you surprised it's taking as long even today with the cloud that it is? I mean, did you think you'd be further along here? No, you know, I didn't, and that was really the opportunity for me uh, because I knew – you know, in my mind, we know how the movie is going to end, which is all this stuff is going to move to the cloud. But we also know that the CFO is, is really, you know, was it change is good, you go first, right? That, that, that's the kind of thing that a CFO would say. And uh, therefore, it didn't surprise me at all that finance was really the last function uh, to, move, to move its apps to the cloud. So, so to me, we're kind of on track with the progress I thought we'd make. Uh, and the whole reason why a kind of cloud disruption play still makes sense in, in 2018 um, is that finance has been slow to move. Um, so, you know, the, the other thing I'd say, like, like any herd animal, uh, it's difficult to get the first few moving. But once CFOs, the other CFOs go into the cloud, they kind of collectively decide it's safe. And, and then in theory, you should get a really nice hockey stick. Now, are your offerings largely uh – Mid-sized companies, are you targeting largely the, the finance departments of mid-sized companies today? 
Yeah, we sell the corporate finance departments of, of actually all size companies, you know. So, so on the low end, we may have a customer that's got 10 or 20 million in revenue. On the high end, literally uh, 30, 40 billion. Um, so, uh, our product itself scales radically across company size. And then our, we, we actually use three different go-to-market strategies for those three different segments. Um, but, but, yeah, we serve all three of them. Now, I want to understand what you see happening inside those departments because there's been a lot of talk around, of course, uh, automation and uh, the robots are coming. What does the finance department look seven, ten years into the future to you? So I think, you know, I think one of the biggest differences is many kind of old-school CFOs today are of the thought, that, you know, that I had to walk uphill both ways to school the snow, right? So, so just because when I was a young finance person, I had to stay up till 3 in the morning cutting and pasting from Excel, that, that you too have to do this rite of passage. <laughs> so in many ways they can be kind of unsympathetic to all to the lack of automation in their finance departments and just say, hey, that's you know, that's why they made young MBAs and we're gonna make them grind it out like I had to grind it out. Um, and I think I think for two reasons that's changing. One is that technology like ours to automate a lot of this drudgery is now available in wide use, economically reasonably priced. Um, and the other, I think, is a result of the war on talent, which is, you know, today there's enough competition, there's enough war, not war on talent, sorry, war for talent, um, that there's enough war for talent out there that they can't retain their people. Uh, if they want to hire, you know, bright people uh, out of good schools with good backgrounds, those people aren't going to want to sit around and copy and paste and excel all day. Um, they're going to want to use kind of good state-of-the-art tools. So I think it's going to be a combination of the pressure for talent plus the availability of technology that really kind of automates finance really for the first time. Let us find out if, and I'm sure uh, Host is in some ways, uh, using data analytics itself to better serve its customers, it would seem to me that having deployed your software into so many different organizations, you can see where you're having the greatest impact and you can serve other customers and let them know Here's the approach that we found optimizes uh, the organization best. I mean, is that a reality, what I'm describing, or how would you say it differently? Well, I think there's two parts of it. I, I think part one is definitely we, we are metrics freaks. We are modeling freaks. We are KPI freaks. And so we, we walk the talk with you, uh, if you will, in terms of using the software ourselves to run our business. I'm personally a huge believer in driver-based models as a way to kind of anticipate the future and build scenarios. Um, the other aspect of what you're talking about to me relates a little bit more to the competitive benchmarking, which is, you know, in theory, if I have 20 retailers' financial stuff uh, information stored in my system, I can start selling benchmark data to say, here, a typical retailer in this size gets this many dollars in square, uh, sales per square foot or has this much growth in same-store sales. Um, we've not gone that route yet because there's a trust issue for us. You know, I, I learned a lot of what I learned about SaaS at Salesforce, and even sitting on top of the vault of data they have, they've still kind of said that data is sacrosanct, and we're not quite comfortable touching it to produce information products, and I'm a little bit of that myself. It's a little bit old school, 
but but our buyers are a little bit old school, um, and, and we're not yet in a position where we're out trying to, you know, we use product usage data to say people are using this part of the product, they're getting stuck in this part of the product to kind of make the product itself better, but in terms of you know, like it's offering information back to the customers that's kind of anonymized, aggregated, compar- comparable sort of data, uh, we're, we're not doing that. Hey. Changing gears here, you mentioned, I believe, Excel one, two times at least and uh, introduced it again as sort of the snag that sometimes prevents organizations from moving forward. You were probably saying the same thing 20 years ago. Does it surprise you that you're still bringing up Excel in that in that respect? Yeah, no, actually, not at all. Um, you know, the finance relationship with Excel is complex. Uh, I consider it a love-hate relationship which is, you know, you can go up to any finance person, and I often ask them this, hey, tell me about the biggest spreadsheet you ever built. Or, like, how many linked documents, what's the maximum? And people will speak with pride about, you know, I built a 150-tab sheet, and, you know, we had 47 linked documents. Um, so, so people are proud. It's a tool they know how to use. Uh, it's a tool they're absolutely fluent in. Um, and, and they're proud of some of the work they've done in it. Um, so that's the love part of Excel. So, so part of our product strategy is to leverage Excel. Some EPM vendors say, hey, throw all that out. And we're like, that's crazy, man. That's throwing out the baby with the bathwater. We don't want to do that. Um, let's keep what you like about Excel. It's grid layout. It's formula language. It's formatting options. Let's, let's keep you in a comfortable grid that looks and feels like Excel, but let's not try and use Excel as something it was never designed to be. Excel was never designed to be a database system. It doesn't have concurrency control. It was never designed to support multidimensionality, which it doesn't have, which is critical in financial planning. It never was designed to support workflow and collaboration. So if we can kind of keep the good and replace the bad, I think that's the way you win in working with finance uh, and Excel. So, so yeah, let me be clear. We, we love Excel <laughs> for what it's good at, um, and, and we want to kind of replace Excel for, for what it was really never designed to do. And what is your, your M&A mindset at Host? Has this company grown through acquisition to date? And uh, tell us about your M&A mindset today. Yeah, thus far our growth has been uh, 100% organic, so we've not done M&A yet. Um, we, we do maintain a list of what I would call talking acquisitions to try and broaden the product line because a lot of what we know how to do here at Host is, is, is kind of work with and sell to the office of the CFO. And uh, we've got a list of companies that, you know, at some point over the next couple of years, I wouldn't be surprised uh, if we raise some capital to go buy a few of them to kind of round out the product line, get some more product in our channel um, to go basically sell to the Office of Finance. You serve on uh, different boards today, and uh, I know this isn't something that happened overnight uh, during the course of your career. You probably were able to... uh, had one board uh, seat and then another, but um, for finance leaders, uh, this can be challenging at times, and uh, there's a networking p- component to it, clearly, but any advice you have for uh, CFOs who are looking to, uh, you know, make themselves available to boards and how, how they can succeed in doing that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um you know, I think first, the good news is the opportunity is there. Virtually every board likes to have one or more independent board members that are kind of finance heavy, 
right, that can talk about uh, and be a second opinion on kind of finance issues. Should we raise debt? Should we raise capital? Who are good debt providers? Um, how do we handle a 409A valuation? You know, all those sorts of questions. So I think that there's definitely demand, and the question is how do you kind of get yourself in the supply? Um, I think the answer is, is a couple of things come to mind. One, I, I would try to be kind of an outward-looking CFO as opposed to an inward-looking one. I think a lot of CFOs know an enormous amount about their business, but they don't spend enough time kind of looking at public company earnings announcements, reading financial analyst research, really being up to date on, you know, the, the leaders' numbers and ratios and reporting. Um, so the first thing I'd say is look outward, because if you want to be on boards, that's critical. Um, and the second thing I would say is uh, try to build relationships with uh, either venture capitalists or private equity people. Often it's their companies that are seeking these board members, and, and if you know somebody at a given VC firm, I'd say that greatly increases your odds of, you know, when somebody says, hey, portfolio company X needs a kind of finance-type finance independent board member, uh, then your name is more likely to come up, and it will come up in a, in a good context as well as a kind of known quantity. So, yeah, to me it would be look outward, be fluent in all the kind of outward-looking issues, um, and then second, uh, try to build those relationships because that's really where the board, I mean, you can get them through recruiters, and I have been recruited, but I've also been put on boards, not put, but proposed for boards because, through venture capitalists who are investors in the company. When it comes, I want to ask you about talent, and, and we know that this is such a highly competitive space. There you are in uh, Redwood City. What, you know, what steps has the company taken to remain competitive since your, your arrival there? Yeah, I think it's a great question. You know, I think for us a lot of it is culture, which is uh, – and what does that mean? Uh, what I mean is I want the company to be a great place to work every day. You know, I mean, some people you talk to, like, they hate their jobs, they hate the work environment, it's political or uh, it's inefficient or, you know, it's, it's uh, changing company mind every day. Uh, and they're there because they're waiting for a liquidity event or they're waiting for a stock option. And, and you know, that, that works, practically speaking. You can kind of keep people unhappy prisoners in, in search of a liquidity event. But it's certainly not the way I want to do things because it only works in the short term. Um, and what we've tried to do at Host, and, and we're a little bit different, right, because we sell the, to the office of the CFO, and, and it kind of makes the company – I'd say, for lack of a term, a little more professional, right? There's not, not a lot of dogs here at work. There's not a lot of ping-pong tables. You know, a, a lot of the Silicon Valley stereotype stuff we don't do because we're appealing to people who typically have either worked in corporate finance departments before and or sell to them. Um, and it creates kind of a, a professional, teamwork-oriented culture that people like working in. So the, the first thing we try to do is, is to, you know, make every day a pleasure um, and, and to really enjoy their work, which, which by the way, includes me. I, I, I really, really enjoy my work, uh, and, and I work here because I enjoy it every day. Uh, obviously, we all hope it's going to lead to a great outcome one day, but, but we're here because we, you know, life is the journey as well as the destination. So uh, I, I think culture is a, is a big part of it. Um, I think core values are also a big part of it. Just re you, you try and recruit people who are consistent with the values that the organization lives, and, and if you've done a good job at that, by and large, they'll be happy, and by and large, they'll want to stay. Well, here's a, here's a question that does put uh, some of our guests on the spot, and it's simply, how do you make a great hire? You've made quite a few over the years. How do you do it? Yeah, you know, that is a very hard question because it, it is always a scary thing to go out and look for a, 
a new person, and it's always very high risk because if they don't work out, gosh, uh, you know, then you, you had an open job for six months, you hired somebody for six months, they failed, and you got to hire somebody again. Uh, there, there are a few things in management more painful than that. So, you know, the, the way that I typically do it, I mean, there's, there's two ways I do it. One, through the network, and, and that's definitely a lower-risk way of doing things. Um, the disadvantage there is you only have the reach of your network. So I'd say half my hires I've done through the network where I knew somebody, known quantity, knew what they could do, very happy to bring them on board, a low-risk way of doing things. Um, the other way I've done it, uh, sometimes with, without success, sometimes with enormous success, is just by using top-end recruiters, people like Hydrogen Struggles or Howard Fisher or uh, Russell Reynolds, you name them, but by using a top recruiting firm, um, and just saying, you know, this is exactly what we want, uh, and then going out and finding it. And I would say, by the way, to add one thing there, I think many recruits fail because you don't know what you're shopping for, and I'm a big believer in making and iterating a list of kind of critical requirements, like the person must have these five things or these seven things, um, and just by, by making that list, iterating on it, debating on it, you really clarify what you're looking for, and, and gosh, it's a lot easier to find it when, when you know what you're looking for. I think the worst thing you can do is go out and just you let some recruiter pitch you, quote, unquote, talent. Uh, oh, I've got a great athlete or I've got great talent. And it's like, well, it, it may be great, but if they're a great second baseman and I need an outfielder, it, it's not going to help me. So, so, so I'm, I'm very wary of that. Thought Leader listeners, don't go anywhere. <laughs> We're going to be asking Dave Kellogg whether he still thinks of himself as a marketer. And what's more, we're going to ask him how can CFOs better partner with marketing after these words from our sponsor. You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. All right, we're up to our final question, but I want to I want to uh, ask you, uh, before we ask the final question, I wanted to find out a little more about you. Uh, do you think of yourselves, you know, you're, you're a serial CEO today, you've done the job, you've built businesses before, but are you a marketer? Do you think of yourselves, and, and you know, looking back, of course, through your career, you have your roots in marketing. But I'm curious if you've always thought of yourself as a marketer or have you thought of yourself differently? Yeah, it's a great question. So originally I thought of myself as a technologist because I got into all this through technology. I was kind of a computer club kid. Um, but, uh, yeah, I do. The short answer is I do think of myself as a marketer. You know, I think all CEOs grew up somewhere, right? Uh, unless you founded a company when you were 21, which some have, but unless you were that, you grew up in finance or you grew up in engineering or you grew up in marketing, um, and, and that does kind of have an imprint on who you are. So I don't think anyone's born CEO. I, I think we all grew up in some function. I grew up in marketing. 
Uh, and I think of myself as a strategic marketer, to be honest. Uh, I, I'm like, you know, my, my job is CEO. Who am I as a person? I'm a strategic marketing person. That's how I look at the world. Uh, I'm also, uh, I view myself as a pretty handy finance person. So, so those are the kind of the two lenses through which I look at the business. But if you say kind of who you are versus what you do, you know, what I do, I'm a CEO. I've uh, done it for 10 years, two companies. But, but who am I? I think I'm a strategic marketer. Looking back, what advice would you offer to finance executives who need to understand better how to partner with marketing within their organization? Is there something you can offer them? Here's what you need to know. Here's what you should do. Well, um, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the first thing I'd say is to be a little bit, I'm going to really put my marketing hat on here for you. Um, so from marketing's view, there's almost two types of finance people, the, the, those who are there to police things and those who are there to help. Um, and I think if you come with an attitude of help, uh, kind of more known in the jargon as business partnership, if you show up uh, with that kind of helpful attitude wanting to help, I think it makes an enormous amount of difference as opposed to showing up with a control attitude. Um, I've always, I'll never remember the first time I, ha I had a big enough budget that they mapped an FP&A person to me, a financial planning analysis person, and that my own career was the first time. It was like, you're in finance, you're incredibly smart, you're really analytical, you're helping me do my planning and helping me spend my money. It's like, I love you. <laughs> I didn't know they made finance people like you. Um, and, and that was, to me, fantastic. So I think FP&A business partnership is just a wonderful way to work with marketing. Okay. Over the next 12 months, what are your priorities when it comes to growing host analytics? Sure. Right now, host analytics, uh, we're focused on organic growth. Uh, we're trying to do that in North America. We're trying to do it in our core EPM market, so which is financial planning, budgeting, consolidation, and reporting. Uh, we're not trying to do a lot of uh, category adjacencies, so we're not trying to move into adjacent markets. We're not trying to do international. Uh, we're trying to do basically, at this point, self-funded organic growth. Uh, as I mentioned to you before, we, we've gone a long way in our last tank of gas. We're very proud of that. We, we run the business in a near cash flow break-even way, um, and our intent is to stay on that course and speed because we think that's what maximizes value uh, of the company. Dave Kellogg, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thanks, Jack. It's, uh, it's been great to be here. Thank you for listening. And don't forget, Thought Leader listeners, you can now go premium at cfothoughtleader.com.